0: Hello and welcome back to Chronicled, the history of Newcastle United. I'm Matt Ketchell, the North East football app and engagement editor here at Chronicle Live. And I'm joined by Paul Joannu, Newcastle's official club historian. This episode is episode two of our new history series. Episode by episode, we're walking through the history of Newcastle United. Last week, episode one saw us cover Stanley FC, a club formed in Biker that changed their name to Newcastle East End. And a decade or so after their formation in 1881, they controversially move across the city to a patch of land known as St James's Park and change their name to United. That transitional period, 1892-93, is what we're covering in this episode. And to help us do that, myself and Paul Joannou have been joined by another Paul, Paul Brown, who brings an extra element of historical expertise to the show, particularly when it comes to the spectator experience during the Victorian era. Paul Brown, welcome to the show. Before we begin, are you able to give us a bit of a background on yourself and some of your work around football history and that of Newcastle too?
1: Yeah, hiya Matt, hiya Paul. Um, So I'm a football writer and lifelong Newcastle United fan. Uh, I've been going since the the mid-80s. I was lucky enough to be going uh, home and away during the Keegan era, the Robson era, which which seemed like history now to us. Um, I I wrote for the the fanzines um, at the time. Now I write for the main football magazines, 442, When Saturday Comes, The Blizzard, um and i've written some uh football history books um the most relevant of which is um all with smiling faces uh which is uh, about what it was like to support newcastle during the early years from 1881 and i've also written a book called savage enthusiasm which is a complete history of football fans in general although it has uh, quite a lot of uh, nufc content in there as well and most recently, I wrote a book, the, the Ruler Bend Football Association, which is the true story of uh, famous footballers in a World War One prison camp. And again, that has a Newcastle United link because one of the footballers was Edwin Dutton, who was a, a Newcastle player. Um, and there's more about all of that on, on my website, which is stuffbypaulbrown.com. And I'm also on Twitter at PaulBrownUK.
0: Excellent. Yes, definitely give Paul a follow and check his website out if you're interested in Newcastle United and football history. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably are, so definitely do that. It's great to have you with us, Paul. Um, So let's get into it. Paul Joannu, I'll start with you. When exactly did Newcastle East End move away from the east end of the city and arrive at St James's Park?
2: Well, they spent uh, the first 10 years of their existence in the East End, uh, starting in 1881 onwards. And... uh, In the summer of 1892, it was uh, the time for a move again and it was all because of the problems that Newcastle West End had, their great rivals, they took over the West End Club more or less, uh, who folded because of uh, financial issues.
0: And was this a surprise move? Did it come out of the blue or was this something that you think might have been on the cards at the time?
2: I think it was, uh, I suppose it was a bit of both really. Um, Newcastle West End had struggled for the last couple of years financially They couldn't support paying wages of of some uh, expensive players that they brought down from Scotland. Uh, The gates weren't big enough, uh, so they were struggling. So there was no shock that they folded in the summer of uh, 1892. But it was a bit of a surprise that Newcastle East End moved to St James's Park, which was at the time the enemy's territory. It was uh, very much uh, the city was split football-wise, the East Enders and the West Enders.
0: Hmm, and it's an important point that we should stress. This wasn't a merger of the two clubs, Newcastle East End and Newcastle West End. Can you explain exactly what happened?
2: Yeah, it, it, you know, everybody or lots of people have said it was a merger, and, and during my early writing days, I suppose I fell into that trap as well, saying it was a merger. It was a merger of sorts, however, uh, without doubt, Newcastle West End folded because of their financial difficulties. They went bankrupt, in effect, um, but the Newcastle. West End officials approached Newcastle East End directors. There was a famous meeting in May 1892 at one of East End's directors' houses in Rothbury Terrace, just uh, along from Chillingham Road. Um, And they uh, offered the East Enders the the assets uh, that remained with the West End club, including the lease of St James's Park uh, and one or two other things like. uh, a few players and the the services of of the West End directors. So uh, you know a couple of meetings took place, and East End decided uh, to take up the offer uh, and, in effect, m- uh, move to St James's Park and you know, took on board a lot of the West End assets.
0: Mm, interesting, Rosbury Terrace in Heaton. I know it well. I like it when you you throw that detail in, Paul. So that's very interesting. That a significant meeting happened there. St James's Park. Then it was emerging as a, a bit of a prime location for football as the nineteenth century approached its conclusion.
2: Yeah, the two clubs East End uh, were based, as I've said before, at Chillingham, Ro- Chillingham Road in-, in Heaton. It was a nice ground, however, it wasn't as as advantageous as St James's Park, which was right in the city centre as we know now. And uh, while St James's Park wasn't you know, the the great you know, palace that we've got at the moment, uh, it was still a, a far better. Uh, arena uh, than Chillingham Road. So it was uh, a good move in many ways to to move across the city and take up residence at St James's Park.
0: I'd love to hear about the origins of St James's Park. How did it get its name? Do we know what it was before it became this uh, football pitch?
2: Well, St James's Park was historically, and still is, it's part of the town Moor, uh, which as everybody in Newcastle knows is a vast expanse of uh, moorland and grassland in the city centre. It Roughly, it was situated where the Scottish army uh, pounded the town during the Civil War in uh, 1644, uh, and where se- several hangings took place in the city, um, the last being in 1844, which wasn't too uh, far from when football started to be played at St. James's Park. At the time, it was just grazing moorland, uh, and it was right next door to the elegant Lees's Terrace, uh, one of Granger's masterpieces in the city. Uh, that was built in 1834 and now is a listed building and, and one of the main reasons why newcastle couldn't develop st james's park as they wish because they couldn't get uh, uh, they couldn't demolish Lees's terrace yeah and and in terms of the name st james's park uh, i don't think there's any dramatic story behind that the name just is taken from the streets uh, adjoining uh, the area, which is St James Street and St James's uh, Terrace, I think it is, which was all part of, of the local area. There was a chapel called St James um, many uh, years before, and that's probably where um, the name comes from.
0: Fair enough. Do we know then when football was first played there, how many spectators might have been there to witness that momentous occasion? People would, there would have had no grasp on the significance of what they were watching.
2: No, uh, the first game, recorded game, was in October 1880, uh, when Newcastle Rangers, the first tenants of the, of the area, played a practice game. Now, football had been played on the Townware area and no doubt on the Leases area, um, around where St. James's Park is for a few years, around that era, probably before 1880. But the pr- first proper club to, to, to start playing at St. James's Park was Newcastle Rangers. Uh, they stayed there for a couple of years, and then newcastle west end moved in during 1886 um in terms of spectators right at the beginning um there's probably more cows than football fans uh uh <laughs> around the field but like at chillingham road and in in baker it, with east end fans started uh, support started watching football slowly there's you know 50 or so to start with a hundred then a thousand um, and eventually at St James's Park when West End were doing well, you know, we had up to ten thousand watching West End games.
0: Interesting. I used the word spectators in my last question, rather than fans. Uh, Paul Brown to bring you in. At this stage, eighteen ninety two, the word fans probably wasn't in use when it came to football and, and sport in general. They weren't yet known as fans, but they were fanatics. Can you tell us what these fanatics were like in eighteen ninety two? What it was like to go to a match?
1: Yeah, so as you as you correctly say, um, they wouldn't have been known as fans. That that was like a, a baseball term from America for baseball fanatics. So they would have been known as um, spectators or supporters or enthusiasts. But they definitely were fanatics by the eighteen nineties when football was going through a real boom in popularity. Attendances, as, as Paul just said, were, were increasing. So in eighteen ninety two. East End or or Newcastle would average around 3000. So today's equivalent is generally around like League Two level. But football in general for big FA Cup matches, you could get 30 or 40,000. So um, football in general was getting to the equivalent of like Premier League levels of crowds, and it definitely moved from a pastime to a passion. And one of the main reasons for that was that um, workers had been given Saturday afternoons off through through legislation. Previously, they would have worked all day on a Saturday. So they would finish work at lunchtime. They would probably go for a couple of drinks um, and then they would go to the ground and they would pack pack into the ground right up to, to the touch lines and the, the flat caps. Um, there were no replica kits or scarves in those days. Um, and before the match, they would be singing. The communal singing was really popular. Uh, both in and outside of football grounds. The songs they would sing, not specifically football songs, but they would be the popular songs of the day. And one of those was um, a musical song, The Bladen Races. So mm-hmm. that's how some of those early early songs have become football songs. And then during the match itself, it would have be been really noisy, uh, a lot of cheering and yelling. They would they wave newspapers and handkerchiefs. One of the most popular shouts was play up. So you would have heard people shouting play up East End or play up Newcastle. Uh, By all accounts, there was a lot of swearing and uh, abuse and criticism of players. So they didn't get away with that uh, back in those days. Uh, And then after the match and away from the match, you know, at workplaces uh, and in, in pubs, the fans would have been discussing the matches and the team lineups and everything like that, just like we do today. Uh, and one report from the Times said that in Newcastle, um, very little else was spoken about um, apart from football. So although the club was relatively small compared to what it is now, um, the fans that it had, they were really sort of fanatical and passionate about
0: the club. Amazing. Yeah, I can I can picture it. You've took me back there to it. it the, the interesting about the Blade and Racers as well can probably claim to be the oldest song that's sung at football if it was being sung all the way back then.
1: Yeah, it's certainly one of them. Um, I mean, some clubs that are slightly older than Newcastle um, had had football songs a- as well, but um, without a doubt, it, it's it's one of them, and uh, it's it's a good tradition. It's one of the one of the few traditions that we'll have uh, carried on, haven't we, since uh, since those times?
0: Yep, yeah, absolutely. Staying with you, Paul Brown. Newcastle fans know that they. are Current St James's Park has a bit of a slope from the Leeser's End down to the Gallagher End, and the the Newcastle captains often encouraged to attack the Gallagher End in the second half. Traditionally, is it true that the slope was even steeper in the Victorian era? What was St James's Park like if you could describe the scene if we were to stroll up to a game in
1: 1892? Yeah, so um, it was the slope at the time was notorious, and I think away teams and uh, reporters who were covering away teams um, really made a big show of it. They called it um, a greasy, muddy slope. But St. James's Park um, itself was, um, it was a pretty big uh, ground, relatively relatively big. Um, and it's obviously the central location was the main, um, the main plus that it had. And it's, it's uh, proximity to central station um, because you had away teams and away fans Uh, because fans did travel to away games at that time you had them coming by train um so if you were heading up to St James's Park in 1892 um obviously the city would have looked um quite different although we have retained uh, a lot of like uh, the Georgian buildings um thankfully um but as you got to St James's Park you would have um you would have seen some Things in the surrounds that are still there today. So there it was a pub where the Strawberry Pub is now. There was a pub there, St James's Street that Paul mentioned before. That was that was there. Uh, it's still there today. Lisa's Terrace, obviously, and Lisa's Park at the north of the ground. But the ground itself would have looked completely different. There was just one stand on the um, on the west side of the ground, and then there would have been soil embankments just um, to for the, for fans to stand on, probably with wooden boards so you didn't get your shoes too muddy but apart from that there were really no facilities whatsoever at the ground um so the players um would actually get changed in a local pub on barrack road and it cost uh around uh, six pence to get in um and the crowd would have been mostly made up of um working working men but we do know that there were quite a few women who supported uh, the team at the time we know that because there, there is a photograph of East End um, that was taken actually at Heaton at the Heaton ground and in the background in the stand or pavilion behind them um, you can see um, that there are uh, a few uh, female supporters uh, all wearing like big hats like they go to the races or something you know
0: mm. fair play fair play Paul draw on you I'll come back to you So so Newcastle East End, they've effectively taken over the prime footballing spot in the city. Uh, West End have have ceased to exist. How did the fans react to this development?
2: Well, they weren't very happy, to be honest. Um, It took a while for both sets, uh, the East Enders and the West Enders, to accept the position. West End fans had lost their own club. They weren't happy. And East End support were pretty angry that they had to now travel from uh, Biker and Heaton, across to the enemy base in the city centre in, in the in the west end old base at St James's Park. So it, it wasn't a very happy position for the first um, few months uh, and it took a while for the club to um, make sure that all of the city um, became uh, united if I, if I want to use that expression.
0: Okay so uh, brilliantly Paul Brown you I believe have some interesting clippings from the Chronicle's letters page of the time we can think of this as the Victorian version of Newcastle United Twitter, uh, with East End and West End fans arguing about the move. We'd love for you to read a couple of those out for us if you have them.
1: Yeah, so um, it was uh, the 10th of May 1892 when the Chronicle reported that East End were moving to St. James's Park, um, and they said, um, there is no doubt that such, with such a central position and with the certainty of a good team and good games, the occupation will be a most successful one. Um, but then the following day, um, an East End supporter wrote into the newspaper and he said, I read with astonishment that East End are going to remove from their present field to St James's Park. I for one, and I know of many others, I'm strongly against this. I must express my surprise at East End leaving the district from which they have derived so much support. And then on the following day, another East End fan who uh, gave his name as, disgusted East Ender, which might have made like a pretty good Twitter handle. Um, he, he wrote in to say that he was worried that his club was leaving a place where they had plenty of support for one where the former rivals West End had what, what he called failed to find sufficient support to prevent their becoming defunct. And he, he said, uh, like he, it seemed like a call to arms. He said, will the supporters of East End stir themselves up and prevent, if possible, a team being removed from the East to the West And then this went on for a few days and then a few days later you've got a a former west end supporter writing in quite a quite a sad letter he's obviously resigned to what's happened and he says um i was a firm supporter of the unfortunate west end i have followed their fortunes for many years i knew the club when it was a healthy vigorous concern and i have seen it gradually sink into a hopeless decline i am heartily glad that its end has come west end is defunct east end is alive and kicking." The survival of the fittest is exemplified and he said he would rather have one well well run popular club in the center of the city and he said he finished by saying that he hoped that east end would change its name to something more inclusive and he suggested newcastle city football club which wasn't what, quite what they went for but they did mm. uh, they did share that sentiment and then um, there must have been inundated with messages from fans because underneath that, that letter the chronicle editor had written um We've received many other letters upon the same subject, but we must now close this correspondence.
0: <laughs> amazing. Hashtag RIP Newcastle West End. It's uh, yeah. <laughs> amazing to to read those those correspondence. Uh, Paul Joannu, I'll come back to you then. With, with Newcastle East Ends um, having an unhappy fan base, what did they do?
2: Well, East End directors um, initially uh, made pleas in the press for, for support. Um, because the, the crowds didn't, weren't very good to start with when they moved to St. James's Park. They made plays for everybody to come and rally around the, uh, the camp and uh, support the club. Um, but eventually uh, they decided uh, that they had to do something quite dramatic uh, and they decided to change the title of Newcastle East End in a, an attempt to harness both the East Enders and the West Enders. And that uh, was the next step in, in the development of the club.
0: And obviously this is the moment when Newcastle became Newcastle United. Do we know what other names were thrown into the hat and what Newcastle United could have been known as?
2: Yeah, certainly it, it's, it's pretty well recorded. Uh, there, there was probably three uh, titles that were uh, put up at the, the meeting which we'll chat about in a moment. Um, Newcastle, playing Newcastle, Newcastle FC, and uh, Newcastle City as Paul mentioned, and the the third one was Newcastle United. Um, and at the meeting that took place, it was uh, quoted that it was almost unanimously uh, voted for Newcastle United, which, of course, is, is a very appropriate uh, title for what happened before.
0: Yes, I think they made the right choice for that one, unanimously deciding on United. Paul Brown, in your book, All the Minor Faces, which tells the story of, of how Newcastle became Newcastle United you're right that Newcastle are actually the second United in the history of football great quiz question who were the first
1: do you want me to give the answer or do you...
0: <laughs> yeah I think we'll, we'll 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 have the answer and everyone who's listening can bank it and impress people who haven't listened to the podcast yeah
1: so that was Sheffield United so yeah. Sheffield obviously a big sort of hotbed of uh of football I think what, what the oldest football club is Sheffield FC but uh, yeah, so Sheffield United were the first United. Mm. Yeah,
2: can, can I interject there? And uh, yes. Uh, yes, it's likely Sheffield United, uh, although with lots of uh, research happening on football at the moment, um, I think we should be seeing it's likely rather than it is. And uh, you know, one of the most recent bits of research on football has uh, noted that Sheffield Football Club isn't the oldest football club in the world. Um, it is the oldest surviving club formed in 1857. But without doubt, there is uh, a a new book, or not new, it's been out for 12 months or two years now. The the club was in existence in 1824 in Edinburgh called uh, simply the Football Club. And uh, there are several uh, contenders to being the oldest football club. And certainly uh, from my point of view, having read that book on the Edinburgh Club, that Edinburgh organisation is the oldest uh, although Sheffield is the oldest surviving club and despite what you read and see on the web and in FIFA's um, and the FA's uh, literature Sheffield FC is not the oldest club in the world.
0: Okay we'll play it safe then and say it's likely they were the first United um, and and hope maybe Newcastle can make a claim to being to being second but Paul Brown you made an interesting point in your book that we tend to ignore the first 11 years of Newcastle history, 1881 to 1892, when the club was known as Stanley and then East End. Meanwhile, other big clubs like Man United and Arsenal, they embrace their early histories under different names, obviously Woolwich, Arsenal, Newton, Heath. Why is it so important that we remember the first 11 years of Stanley and Newcastle East End?
1: I think it's <laughs> strange not to really. Um, most big clubs have, have changed their names and, um, during during their early part of their history, um, and I think that for Newcastle history, the history of the club is one of the things that makes it so great. And those uh, first eleven years, they're the years when the club that we support today was uh, was built up. It, it built its fan base. Um, it had some very good players. It won some silverware. Uh, so uh, we we definitely don't want to be chucking that away. Um, and the club it. it in those eleven years, it got it got to matter to people, um, and I think that's really important. Why would we not sort of celebrate those those early years and say that um, you know Newcastle United was formed in eighteen eighty one, um, and that would mean that this year in November twenty twenty one we should be celebrating the club's one hundred fortieth anniversary. And uh, I hope well, I'll I'll do that anyway. I hope, I hope other fans will join
0: in. Yes, well, we're doing that now by by uh, recording this this uh, episodic of, of the history to, to celebrate that 140th year. So, yeah, I think I think you're right. And I think it's good that we point this out to, to listeners. One thing we definitely know is that um, Newton Heath became Manchester United in 1902. So Newcastle were a full 10 years ahead of Man United in, in, in their United. So I just wanted to point that out for, for some of the pundits out there. Uh, Jermaine Genius, among others, at uh, Newcastle have 10 years on Man United with that. This episode, of course, covers a uh, hugely pivotal moment in the history of the club. What can you tell us about the specific meeting where they came to decide on the name change from East End to United? Paul you, I'll direct that to you.
2: Yes, okay. Well, uh, it was on the 9th of December um, 1892 that a meeting was convened. Uh, it was a Friday evening at the Bath Lane Hall which is just over Barrack Road on the other side from St. James's Park. Um, and uh, a, a gathering of enthusiasts and club directors uh, um, debated what, what should happen and what name um, they would choose. So uh, as we mentioned before, they decided uh, on Newcastle United as a title. So Newcastle East End became Newcastle United um, who are as we've kept seeing the very same club as Stanley FC of biker, and that change uh, worked, uh, but support arrived only uh, very slowly, and it took time to uh, embrace or uh, that the city embraced the the one city club culture.
0: Do we know who Newcastle played in their first ever game as United and did they win?
2: Uh, Yes, we certainly know that. In fact, there was two games really, in typical Newcastle style. Um, The day after the meeting, on the 10th of December, uh, they played middlesbrough Ionopolis at St James's Park in the Northern League. Uh, They lost that game 2-1 in front of around 2,500 and it was played in a snowstorm. And that was before the Football Association actually approved the change in title. Really, the official first game, if you want to term it that way, was not until the 24th of December when the FA agreed to change from Newcastle East End to Newcastle United. And by coincidence, uh, the club played Middlesbrough again, but the other Middlesbrough club this time uh, in a friendly and the 1-2-1 at St James's Park. And that was, uh, in effect, the first official game uh, under the new title of Newcastle United.
0: Very good. It's also worth noting at this point that the club, were keen to join the new football league, but it hadn't quite happened yet. When did that occur?
2: Yeah, it was... uh, They actually tried to join the league straight away in May 1892, the same summer, um, but they failed. They didn't get enough uh, votes for the election. And it wasn't until the next summer, the close season of 1893, that they tried again and they were elected into the uh, football league in the second division in a momentous day really because not only were newcastle united elected but also liverpool and arsenal and uh you know all three clubs joined at the same time
0: and is this the point where some listeners might not be aware but they actually played in red shirts and there was a change to black and white around this time is that correct
2: well yeah black and white stripes did not arrive for a little while um uh, newcastle east end stanley and newcastle east end started off playing in blue shirts uh, they had dark blue shirts and Cambridge blue shirts and they changed to red. And certainly by the time they moved to St. James's Park, they were still playing in red shirts. And uh, But they had a problem as, as soon as they joined the Football League. Um, several of the clubs in the second division all played in red. So there was often colour clashes and um, Newcastle um, eventually decided to change colours uh, uh, during the latter uh, part of uh,
0: 1894. Well, wow. so it could have looked very different supporting Newcastle United prior to that change. Do we know why black and white was selected?
2: Well, the the, the club minutes, which I, I've been right through, it, it, it the, the decision happened in August 1894. There's a minute which uh, decides the change black to black and white stripes. Um, they don't actually tell us why. However, there's there's several tales which have come down through history. And it's very difficult to establish the the correct or or the definitive version. You know, there was a few magpies in the old stand, some people said, and and Mm -hmm. that's why they chose black and white. Uh, There were supporters from the old Blackfriars Monastery who were supporters of the club and they wore black and white habits all the time. So again, a link there, the the historic Duke of Newcastle's historic black and white colours. Uh, were evident as well and and are still uh, evident in the city. Northumberland's black and white tartan uh, has been there for years and years uh, historically. My own particular view, it's likely that they selected the colours because Northumberland had played in black and white stripes um, and they perhaps quite simply just uh, adopted the colours of of the Northumberland County. Uh, And Newcastle East End had already worn black and white stripes occasionally um, as a change kit, along with various other colours. Indeed, the very first match in the Football League uh, when they travelled to Arsenal, uh, because Arsenal played in red shirts, Newcastle East End had the change and they played in blue and white striped shirts. Um, and that's that fact's only really recently been uh, uncovered when we found a, a very detailed match report from the kent independent i think it is newspaper and it confirms that the played in blue and white
0: wow interesting paul brown any other theories on the, the change to black and white and maybe when the magpies nickname might have come into play yeah well on the
1: black and white i mean i'm 100% agree with paul i think it was just that um black and white stripes were the northumberland county colors uh, and that those strips We've got to remember that football, a set of football strips would have been pretty expensive. So um, I think that they possibly wore the exact same kits that Northumberland County used. Um, they were probably Northumberland County team played at St James's Park. So there's a it's a possibility that those kits, you know, were stored at St James's Park and they were there, and so Newcastle um, just used them. And kind of symbolically, also, it's kind of making a, a statement that Newcastle are kind of representing. Northumberland they're the team of Northumberland which I, I suppose they they did um go on to become as for the nickname uh, again nothing um really fans fanciful about it early reports after they'd switched to black and white stripes um referred to them as playing in magpie colors and so I think it just came from that it just simply came from the black and white colors um and they became uh, known as the magpies
0: hmm. Romantic to imagine there were some magpies nesting in in one of the stands near the ground, though. I I do like that theory. (laughs) Finally, I've got a question for you both. Can we talk a bit about some of the players of note during this first season or two as Newcastle United? Paul Brown, I'll start with you.
1: Yeah, so I I would pick uh, a couple of Willies. Willie Thompson, who was uh, the local centre forward, he was from just outside Ashington. So he was, uh, although they didn't wear numbers, on the back of the kits at that time. So you can't say he was a number nine, but he he was the first in a long line of local center forwards. Um, and he scored, I think 65 goals for, for the club. And the other Willie was Willie Graham, who was described as a thick set Scottish center half, which at the time <laughs> was a central midfielder. And he was mm-hmm. the club captain and he made over a hundred appearances for the club. And there's, there's a little uh, anecdote involving the two of them. Um, during the or after the first league game newcastle's first league game against arsenal um which they drew 2-2 um a reporter went into the dressing room and he found willie graham the captain absolutely fuming and uh he was upset because they'd had a terrible journey down overnight train journey but mainly um arsenal had scored um using a handball that the referee hadn't spotted or hadn't, hadn't spotted or hadn't given and uh, Willie Graham was absolutely furious. And he said to the reporter, he said, I'm telling you now, uh, we play Arsenal in the return game in a couple of weeks at St. James's Park. And I'm telling you now, we're going to beat them by at least four goals. And then fast forward um, three or four weeks, Arsenal come up to St. James's Park and Newcastle hammer them six <laughs> nil. And um, Willie Thompson, the, the Ashington centre forward, he scored a hat-rick. Mm. So they did, they did get revenge for that That handball.
0: Brilliant. Fair play. Fair play to the lads. And Paul Joann, you any other players that we uh, should nod to at this stage?
2: Yeah, I think it's probably worth pointing out that uh, apart from Willie Graham, who was uh, from a famous Scottish family at the time, footballing family, there were several other Scottish footballers. Uh, Newcastle East End brought down quite a lot of Scots at that time uh, and for many, many years to follow. But in that, Team in the very early days, 1892, 93. Uh, there were people like James Collins, Joe Wallace, two great Scottish forwards, Tom Create, another one, another Scottish forward, and Jock Sawley, and also Bob Creely, who was a fearsome-looking halfback, who uh, also came from North of the Border, um, and another player who was um, a local lad who played alongside Willie Thompson in the Ashington Bedlington area was Harry Ray. Who, uh, who was very talented, and eventually he made a big move to Everton, who were much, much uh, more advanced than Newcastle East End at that time.
0: Interesting. Our first heroes. Great, great to hear those names in, in, in the descriptions. Uh, so there we'll, we'll leave it there. We, we've um, we've covered 1892,93 Newcastle East End have taken over at St. James's Park following the demise of West End. A bit of further reading we should definitely point out uh, Paul Brown's book Savage Enthusiasm, which is covers uh, the Victorian era of, of football but from a uh, football spectators point of view and uh, Paul's book All the Smiling Faces, which I have here, which is uh, the story of how Newcastle became United covering the, the team from 1881, as we now know is when the history began, to 1910. Both fantastic books. I've, I've read both of them. Really, really great. Uh, must reads if you're interested in Newcastle United history, particularly the club's uh, hugely important formative years. So that's episode two covered. The first official takeover at St. James's Park has happened. I said I wouldn't mention that dreaded word, but that's effectively what's happened here. In 1892, Newcastle East End have taken over at St. James's Park following the demise of Newcastle West End. Please join us next week. We're going to jump forward to 1897-98 when Newcastle are promoted to the top division. In the meantime, thank you, Paul Joannou and Paul Brown. Listeners, Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the Everything is Black and White podcast via whichever podcast platform you use. Follow Chronicle Live's Newcastle United channels on social media. We're at ChronicleNUFC on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And keep an eye out for new episodes of Chronicled, the history of Newcastle United every week. If you have a question about the history of Newcastle United, email those to us. Our email address is the podcast at reachplc.com. I'll read out the best on future shows and will attempt to answer them. Thanks so much for listening to Chronicled, the history of Newcastle United.